Welcome to a special edition of Attic Aficionados. This is a listener interview with my friend and co-worker Derek Stutzman. Derek, Hello. pleasure to have you on Attic Aficionados after all this time. You're one of the first folks to get in contact associated with doing a listener interview. I've known you for a year and a bit now. You've been working at Netflix with me on a device that Brandon is very passionate about. I'm quite passionate about as well, the TVOS Apple TV. Just as an introduction, one of my favourite stories that I've observed working with you relates to your dog and how your dog became a Californian, a true Californian. <laughs> sure. So um, my dog Tiberius is a Jack Russell Terrier, and he's very high energy, and he's upset by many things. You could say he's high stress, high anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so we hired a behaviorist to come out and talk to us, and she prescribed him cannabis-based dog treats which is the most California thing I've ever heard. Right. And uh, they did not work, but, you know. Well, they worked initially. Like oh, yeah, they, they gave me some samples, and the samples seemed to work beautifully, but it was either coincidence or the samples were different than the production ones because I bought a, a case of the things after the initial positive results, and uh -huh. it didn't, uh, didn't take. So. Alas. The first stuff was free, that got you hooked, <laughs> and then when you were paying money for it, it didn't work out quite as much. Yeah, something like that. So... Another thing that you share with Brandon is your love of classic arcade cabinets and arcade gaming. And as is the standard with Attic Aficionados, you have provided me a good set of notes that I can score from associated with my questioning. But just in terms of being a kid in the 80s, in terms of the experience of arcades, can you kind of take us back to that period of time and what your particular experience was in arcades that made you want to recreate it? Absolutely. So back in the day, the arcades were huge, and almost every neighborhood had an arcade within biking distance. Mm. And so it was a huge thing to go to the arcade. Everybody did this. They were very clean. All the games were new. There was no smoking allowed. <laughs> um, and so it was a good, safe place for a kid to go and hang out. The games were really just a, a very big deal back then, not just in, in arcades, but even at places you wouldn't expect, like grocery stores would have two or three cabinets in the little vestibule where mm -hmm. the carts are. Mm -hmm. So you could play a few games while your mom was getting her groceries. Um, but the, the interesting thing about the games back then was that everything was so different and new. Every cabinet that came out was unique in its own way. It had different artwork, different controls. They were all custom designed to fit the game. And uh, so the, the companies were always trying to one-up each other and come up with something interesting that would draw the attention of the player. <laughs> uh, yeah, there were games, uh, you know, Battlezone was a popular game by Atari that was adapted from a military simulator, and it had a, a scope that you would put your face into and, and look through and control with these little fist grip things. <laughs> uh, Tron had a spinner and a glowing blue joystick that was illuminated through a black light. That was uh, you know, unique to that game. So it was, it was just kind of a magic time because the games were all amazing. They were all different and new. There wasn't a, the video gaming hadn't been around long enough for there to be much duplication at that point. Mm. And so it was it was just all very uh, interesting and fun. So in terms of Miss Pac-Man, that's one of the games you noted. Talk a little bit about Miss Pac-Man. Sure. So Miss Pac has a very interesting story. Pac-Man, of course, was hugely popular back in the day. Mm -hmm. You know, just to go back to what the 80s were like, Pac-Man fever was a very real thing. Certainly. Um, there were songs about it. You know, you would see arcades and they would have a dozen copies of Pac-Man and they were all full. The convention back then to claim your next game was to put your quarter up on the marquee. Oh, uh, yes. And so you would see those row of machines and rows of quarters on the, on the marquee. So Pac-Man was super popular. 
this company called the General Computer Company started making add-on kits for existing games to modify them and change the behavior and give you, you know, freshen up the gameplay. They did one for Missile Command, and they did one for Pac-Man called Crazy Auto. And what happened was they went to court with Atari. Atari was not at all happy about this Missile Command business. Mm. And in their negotiation, they basically came to the agreement that, you know, the lawyers asked them, what do you want? What do you guys want? And they said, well, we just want to make games. They said, fine, make some games for us, and we'll, you know, we'll put this thing to bed. They said, great. Then they went to Midway and said, hey, we just beat Atari in court, so you can't do anything about our game. Mm-hmm. At which point Midway said, well, let's talk sequel. So Crazy Auto was an add-on for, for Pac-Man. You, you basically unplug the CPU, plug this daughter board in, and plug the CPU into the daughter mm-hmm. board. And it changed the mazes, it changed the sounds, you know, it, it changed the characters to this little man with two legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, the California Extreme Show this past weekend here in the Bay Area actually had a Crazy Auto cabinet, which mm-hmm. was amazing. I've never seen one before. Mm-hmm. But um, so anyway, all they did was change the sprites into, you know, Miss Pac-Man. Other than that, the game seems very much identical mm-hmm. to me. And that's how Miss Pac-Man came to be. Every Pac-Man, every Miss Pac-Man cabinet that you see is a Pac-Man with a daughter board on it. And you mm-hmm. can actually remove the daughter board and socket the Z80 where the daughter board was, and it mm-hmm. will play the original Pac-Man. That's cool. They never actually uh, you know, re- um, re-engineered the board. They just mm-hmm. you know, used the add-on kit. So you mentioned Food Fight as well. The, yeah, that was the, the same company. That was, okay. They ended up making two games for Atari. Mm-hmm. One of them was Food Fight, and one of them was Quantum. And neither one of these games were particularly popular. They didn't do very well, but they're, they've been very highly sought after by collectors. Mm-hmm. Food Fight, because it's got a particularly beautiful cabinet with you know, really nice artwork and a, a unique joystick. I believe it is a Hall Effect joystick. Mm-hmm. And Quantum it was one of the color vector games. Mm-hmm. So the games back then came in two flavors. Most of them were raster games, which were pixel-based, like you know Pac-Man or anything mm-hmm. else. The others were what ops called XY games, arcade operators called XY games, or the players called vector games where everything was drawn point to point, and you were able to get higher resolution. Mm -hmm. Asteroids is an example of a very well-known black-and-white vector game. Mm -hmm. So they started coming out with color vectors. Uh, Tempest was the first, but Quantum was designed to be one of those. And it had a trackball that you would... The gameplay was really boring. (laughs) There were these little uh, molecules, I guess you'd call Mm -hmm. them, and you drew circles around them with the trackball to... You know, seize them and get points. Mm-hmm. Uh, my arcade, had, as a kid, had one of those machines, and it never saw any traffic. So it was pretty much reviled by the operators who invested in them. But collectors mm-hmm. pay top dollar for them. Interesting, today. interesting. I mean, when I think of classic arcade cabinets, I think about the ones that come from my childhood that I had an interest in playing. Then sure, but you're saying that the collectors actually, because of rarity, probably more than anything are also drawn to these other games which may not have the initial sparkle of the ones that you know we remember from yesterday. Absolutely. that's um, The most highly sought-after games are generally terrible to play. Uh, but often they have really beautiful cabinets, so they, and that's, you know, that, that goes a long way. For me, collecting these games was like having, you know, period art pieces that so reminded me of being that kid in the 80s going into the arcade. Yes, yeah. So you mentioned laser games as well. I mean, certainly I remember these Dragon's Lair, these kind of games sure. where, you know... Can you talk a little bit about them from a technological standpoint? Yeah, that was a big deal when the laser games came out. That was around 1984. Dragon's mm-hmm. Lair was, was the first, at least the first that I ever saw. And the, it was unique in a couple of ways. One, it was 50 cents to play. Mm-hmm. And it was hard-coded that way. The operators could not configure it to be a 25-cent game. Mm-hmm. You had to pay double 
what it would cost you to play any other game in the place. Mm. But um, the technological leap was astounding. You know, we spoke earlier about the raster games versus mm -hmm. the vector games. Laser games gave you an actual cartoon picture. And so it was stunning to see that in the arcade. Mm -hmm. the, the dirty secret of laser games is that the gameplay suffered. You know, they were little more than, you know, quick time events. You know, play some mm -hmm. video, and if you play the right move at the right time, play another piece of video. Mm -hmm. And so they were kind of a cheat in a way, I think. They, they made things look like they got the, like the technology had progressed to a certain point, but they really hadn't. Because this game was making so much money, all the other game manufacturers mm -hmm. jumped on the laser game train, and they all made laser games, and they were all terrible. Um, the Dragon's Lair and, and Space Ace, both from you know the Cinematronics and Don Bluth, were mm -hmm. the best of the bunch, I would mm -hmm. say. And in your notes, you mentioned that this contributed to a crash, basically, in arcade gaming. <laughs> so, there, yeah, there was a very big arcade crash, video gaming crash, in 1984, thereabouts. Mm -hmm. I personally blame the laser games. That's just my mm -hmm. own personal theory. Okay. I won't say that that's... I, I think they played a, a part, and mm -hmm. that's because of that cheat. You know, They <laughs> moved the needle technologically without... Or, or visually, rather. Mm -hmm. They moved the needle visually without having the gameplay to back it up. And so players became disillusioned very quickly. Yeah. And then they, they you know, started to find other things to do with their time. Then you note in the post-crash, there are conversion kits, but many of the classics were destroyed. Can you talk a little bit about the post-crash? Sure. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, all the games were unique. Mm -hmm. When a new game came out, a new cabinet was constructed for it with new artwork, new colors, new uh, controls, everything. And after the crash, the games that came out around 1985, there was a standard that emerged called JAMA, mm -hmm. which was a common edge connector where these you could just send out a new marquee, a board, and you'd plug it into a JAMA harness and have a new game. Mm -hmm. And so the games that were still around after the crash were almost all JAMA conversion kits. Mm -hmm. And so they would take these beautiful games, paint the sides black, puts nasty stickers on the side for whatever new game they bought. Sometimes they just had an, a marquee that just simply said, new game. Mm. I mean, all the personality and, mm -hmm. and love that went into those things was gone, and they just became kind of generic games. Mm. Um, lots of classics were lost that way. The, the first game that I ever restored was a game that had been converted to JAMA. Mm. It was a Robotron cabinet. I didn't know that when I bought it. It was mm -hmm. a Street Fighter II when I bought it, which mm -hmm. was a game that I enjoyed in my college years. Mm -hmm. And so when I bought it and got it home, a, a more savvy collector said, hey, that's a Robotron cabinet. And I started looking around, and sure enough, there were indications of, you know, Williams, you know, stamps mm -hmm. on the mm -hmm. inside and things like that. And then I became really excited about making it original again. Mm -hmm. So I pulled out all the Street Fighter guts, got all the Robotron guts off of uh, eBay, and um, set to work sanding all the black junk off the sides. This one was bad because it wasn't just painted black. It was painted black, then glued Formica on the sides. Mm. So it was an immense amount of work to get that all back to raw wood, get stencils, re-stencil the artwork. But I made it beautiful. Um, I wish I still had it. It came out wonderfully. But um, you know, that, that's kind of how I got started with the games because finding nice originals was very difficult, but finding converted originals that could be reconverted back mm -hmm. was a little easier. Mm -hmm. The holy grail in arcade collecting is what's called HUO games, or home use only. Mm -hmm. And I've met some folks in the collecting community who have inherited the collections or purchased the collections from celebrities that were in their personal game rooms mm -hmm. and had you know a dozen games that saw only a couple hundred plays, you know, never saw the light of an arcade. Mm. So those are those are very highly sought after. Interesting, interesting. So we then move into the fighting games, which I think is probably 
I don't know. I mean, is this Double Dragon and these kind of things? Is that a fighting game? That, those kind of games were sort of in the JAMA era. Okay. Um, I was, you know, the fighting game era was really the early 90s. Okay. When Street Fighter II came out. Mm-hmm. That was almost a resurgence of the arcade boom. Because, you know, in the 80s, the operators were just making tons of money. Mm-hmm. Hand over fist. And then it crashed, and they were kind of just getting by. And then the 90s came with Street Fighter 2, and all of a sudden, everybody wanted to go back to the arcade again. They mm-hmm. wanted to put their quarter on the marquee so and they, play each yep. other head-to-head. Yep. And it was immensely popular. And so, just like they converted all the games to JAMA, anything that hadn't been converted yet got converted to Street Fighter 2. Mm. And so, more classics got destroyed <laughs> in, in that era. Yeah. But it, there was a resurgence, right? I yeah, mean, it, it's, yeah it, it did bring the arcades back for a little bit. Mm. Then you know Era 4, which is the arcade collecting era. But arcades still exist. I mean, this is what interests me, that there's still a functioning thing. I mean, maybe less so in California because of the cost of, you know, strip mall space. But in, in large parts of the U.S., they still have arcades, right? They do. They're very different than the way they used to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, the game experiences in the arcades of the 80s were generally, you know, one to two minute experiences. In fact, they were designed that way. I mm. believe 90 seconds was the optimal time to try and get you off the cabinet. That mm. was the the time that they figured gave the best pay to play ratio, mm-hmm. where you didn't get too frustrated, but you know they made the most money. Obviously, the street fighting games required more time on the actual machines, though, right? Oh, sure, but the, but they were making money constantly because the, yeah. each player had to pay, and the loser yes. yeah. would get kicked off, and another yeah. challenger would come up. So yeah. they were just raking in quarters. Um, so the, anyway, that. The arcades of today are so different than the arcades of the 80s mm-hmm. because all the games were very unique and different and they were very short experiences. Mm-hmm. And generally, you would take your, your wad of tokens mm-hmm. and go through and play all the games you know, or, or a large collection of games. So you had lots of small experiences all at once. Mm-hmm. I usually only had four quarters. That was usually my allotted budget. And mm-hmm. I would take my four quarters and I'd walk the whole arcade and rub my chin thoughtfully and figure mm-hmm. out which ones were going to get my games. The arcades today are so different because they're almost all redemption machines. You know, they're all token-based or ticket-based games mm-hmm. that pay out stuff so you can get little prizes. And big I, driving simulators. I think That's this, the other thing that you see. I mean, certainly talking to Brandon, this, this seems to be... I mean, Dave & Buster's is the... What would one call it? The McDonald's. So this is this kind of franchising games thing. I mean... Yeah. But there are still... My understanding is, and maybe Brandon is a particular kind of sir, but my understanding is there are still... Okay, it's take quarters where you can go in and have those kind of experiences. They may just not exist here. Well, okay, so it's actually almost come full circle mm-hmm. because there was this period of the Dave and Buster's style arcade with, mm-hmm. with the redemption machines and driving sims, and that's about it. And now there's a resurgence of barcades mm-hmm. where they're actually taking the 80s games and putting them into a place where you can buy drinks and play games, and it caters to people like me mm-hmm. in my age bracket. Mm-hmm. So that and that's been a very successful thing. Some of the collectors that I know actually have multiple locations that they're mm-hmm. you know, making that they a and, yeah, absolutely interesting. So let's talk about how you got started in collect. Well, the Robotron was the the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I was single at the time, mm-hmm. and I had a lot of time on my hands, and I decided that I should do whatever it is that I always wanted to do, mm-hmm. while I had no one that told me I couldn't. And that's what led me to buy my first Street Fighter II machine, and that became the Robotron. And mm-hmm. the experience of restoring that was very rewarding, and so then I started buying more. Mm-hmm. I got a Qbert after that, and... Um, and I got a Tempest, and I got a Star Wars, the old Vector one with mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. Key, the grips. 
And you were in Texas at the time. Yes. So was the, did you buy just locally, or how did you source the games? Several places. Sometimes off Craigslist. You get lucky from someone selling it that way. Sometimes wow. off eBay. Mm-hmm. My first one was from eBay. Uh, sometimes uh, through other collectors. You know, I made friends with other collectors in the neighborhood and in, in, in the city, mm-hmm. and uh, they would clue me in on cabinets that they were trying to sell or they knew someone who mm-hmm. had one that I was looking for, this and that. Um, there were also auctions that would come through, super auctions, and they would have you know just dozens and dozens of games. And I got a lot of games from super auctions. Wow. I had 17 games at the peak of my collection. And then I got married. Mm-hmm. And the games started to go away one by one. Yes, and yes. It's interesting, actually, in terms of collections, because I've known people that have had small collections. I've seen collections on YouTube. But there seems to be some perfect ratio of, you know, like games, things that you will never get rid of that are, like, central in your collection, but then things that you're working on that you may sell, very similar to cars in that regard. Absolutely similar. And yeah. the notion of having a car on blocks that you never do anything with, yes. that happens in the arcade community a lot. Yeah. You know, you buy this project cabinet that you're going to fix up one day, and it never happens. So can you talk a little bit about the original cabinets versus the restoration cabinets? Because, I mean, obviously that appears to be two separate markets. But with people that have a... I mean, it's obviously a financial thing more than yeah. anything. But if someone is looking for that perfect game and they're not buying, you know, six or seven, they've just basically saved up enough money to buy one good one, what's the original market like? Is the original market just basically untouchable just for the super wealthy or...? Well, they, they can certainly get up there in price. Mm-hmm. Um, and it depends entirely on the game. You can, for example, Miss Pac-Man, you can mm-hmm. get an original Miss Pac-Man. My prices might be a little out of date because I haven't <laughs> been buying for a while, but... Let's say original Miss Pac-Man in reasonable shape, $650, $700 maybe. Oh, that's not that much. Yeah, right. But if you want a Quantum mm-hmm. or a Cliffhanger, well, you're going to pay three or $4,000. Okay. Okay, interesting. And there's reproductions of these things sometimes too, where, you know, the there's actually companies that sell reproduction artwork. Certainly. And so you can get the new stickers for the sides, you can get the new overlays for the control panels, mm-hmm. everything you need to build these things back from scratch. Also, everything you need to build a reproduction cabinet. And so sometimes people will make, you know, effectively fakes because the mm-hmm. originals are too hard to come certainly, by. Certainly. So you talked a little bit about your Robotron restoration. Did you do a Dragon Slayer restoration as well? I did. That one was uh, fairly extensive. It's one of the ones I'm most proud of um, in terms of how it came out. <laughs> it was, when I got it, it didn't work and it had, the front was kicked in mm. and just smashed. The, that particular game was wrapped in black vinyl. Hmm. So I, and, and it was chewed up, all the vinyls chewed up on the sides. You know, the thing really needed some love. So I re, I cut out a new front piece, you know, smashed out all the old one with a sledgehammer, mm-hmm. put in the new front piece, wrapped the entire cabinet in brand new vinyl, mm-hmm. applied brand new reproduction artwork. Uh, I put in a modified ROM set with a switch so it could play Dragon Slayer or Space Ace just by flipping the switch and switching out the laser disc. Mm. And that was a, a beautiful cabinet when it was done. I really regret selling that one. Mm. But the best one I ever did, which was also a laser game, was Cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. Cliffhanger was my personal Holy Grail cabinet. And I really, I, I didn't expect I would ever find one, but one time at Super Auctions, I did. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Super Auctions, the way they were set up, they would generally have 
classics that were highly sought after for the first couple of rows, and then a couple of rows of the generic jammas and fighting games and stuff like that, and then what's called the junk row, mm-hmm. which are really just garbage usually. <laughs> they're cabinets that have been you know waterlogged or they're just completely gutted or you know it's usually just you know you might buy them for the parts kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Cliffhanger had a very unique artwork style on the cabinet. It had a very bright pink on the front and bright blues on the side and chrome tea molding. Mm. And it was kind of garish, but it was beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. it, it was what I wanted. And I was just walking the junk row and I saw this Pitfall 2 cabinet that was clearly a cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I jumped on it. I ended up buying it for $50. Mm-hmm. When I got it home, uh, the, the safe area at the bottom with the lock, I broke out the lock and when I opened it, there was an original cliffhanger laser disc in the bottom, mm-hmm. which was worth hundreds just by itself mm-hmm. and $25 and quarters. So I totally scored on that cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a long time to get the boards. Cliffhanger has seven different boards. And so I searched eBay for a little over a year and a half, mm-hmm. you know, until I had all the boards and mm-hmm. I made my own wiring harness from the schematics mm-hmm. and uh, sourced the correct laser disc player. I already had the laser disc for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, reproduction artwork was available. So I bought mm-hmm. all the repro art and, you know, it was beautiful. It was an amazing cabinet. I ended up selling it for $3,300. Okay. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about the the wood restoration in particular? Because, I mean, a lot of this stuff is chipboard, right? You talked about waterlogging, this kind of stuff. I mean, do people... I I have a kind of hate-hate relationship with chipboard. Everything that I've ever acquired made out of chipboard has had some degree of deterioration. And it's just, for me, a product which I would replace with real wood in a heartbeat, given the chance. No question. Um, it depended on the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Now, Williams, who made Defender, Joust, mm-hmm. Robotron, they favored plywood. Mm-hmm. Those cabinets last forever, mm-hmm. and they're light, and they're easy mm-hmm. to move. Of course, yes. Yeah. Atari loved the particle mm-hmm. board, mm-hmm. and so almost all of their games were that heavy particle board. The mm-hmm. games weigh way more than any of the other ones, and if they see even a lick of water, they crumble. Exactly. And... It's not easy to deal with that. My Star Wars was fairly water damaged around the bottom edges when I got Mm -hmm. it. And so it's a process of applying Bondo and sanding it and then, you know, reapplying the the side art or paint or whatever, you know, the game needed. I've got a Tempest project at home right now that's in that state. It has Mm -hmm. fairly bad water damage. And that's the other thing. Over time, you know, the collectors have have taken the cabinets that are worth taking. And so getting into the hobby now... You don't get the the good ones. Mm-hmm. And the, the one I bought right before I moved here to California was a pretty poor cabinet. Mm-hmm. So you know, you talk about replacing this stuff with new wood. I'm actually considering having a reproduction cabinet made and just mm-hmm. putting all the artwork and guts on that yeah. and junk this thing because yeah. the that particle board is terrible. Yeah, particle board is just horrible. But in terms of the new wood market, they were made in mass, right? Mm-hmm. So the actual woodworking skills required to produce an arcade cabinet. Isn't that great, given, you know, the right saws and these kind of things, right? Well, there are entrepreneurs who have tackled this problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a gentleman in Colorado that has an arcade factory, and he will Mm -hmm. make cabinets to spec based on the original plans. In some cases, these plans were reverse engineered by, Mm -hmm. you know, smashing and beat cabinets. But, you know, the plans are available. And so that's how, how that happens these days. Wonderful. Wonderful. So I think I've covered all of your topics. Is there anything that you want to... Leave the listeners of Epic Aficionados with particularly associated with arcade cabinet collecting. 
Well, I, w- I would just probably end by talking about MAME. Mm-hmm. Uh, MAME is multi-arcade emulator. It mm-hmm. is a piece of software that plays all of the old classic 80s and 90s so, arcade games. This piece of software is also responsible for killing a lot of uh, u- unique and rare original cabinets mm-hmm. because people think, well, I want to have a multi-game in my house. So they get some game, trash the guts because mm-hmm. I don't need this stuff, and put a computer in there and make it a main cabinet. I would hope that anyone who is considering doing that, please make sure it's not a rare cabinet before you do that. Talk mm. to some collectors and see if you're about to kill a cabinet that's a good one. But you could buy money through this process, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you, you, yeah absolutely. You may have a, a gem on your hands and not realize it. Certainly. Well, Derek, thank you for your listener contribution to Attic Aficionados. We might get you back on another date for another topic, but I think you've provided a lot of really cool information, and thank you very much for participating. Happy to do it. Thanks, Tom.